0: Remember, last week we were looking at the, Jesus after turning the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan. He makes his way to Jerusalem for um, the Passover. The Gospels give most of their airtime to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And of course, in Jerusalem, but most, most in Galilee. But for John, it's uh, the opposite. Most of it is airtime in His his work in ministry, of course, culminating in the cross in Jerusalem. And so here He is moving into Jerusalem (coughs) to celebrate the Passover. And we talked about last week that there would have been a lot of people in Jerusalem because they would have come from all over the Roman Empire at that time to celebrate this pinnacle celebration of the Jews, the Passover, celebrating and reminding them and memorializing the, the exodus where God supernaturally delivered them from 430 years of Egyptian bondage and uh, we know of course that is a picture of redemption it's a preview of coming attractions as all of the Old Testament is of the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross his burial his resurrection and his uh, second re- return focused in on last week the setting that was taking place, what was going on there, and Jesus's rage, his righteous rage about the abuses and the exploitations that were, the exploitation that was going on there at the time, dealing with the corrupt priesthood that he went into the temple and found, the corrupt priesthood that was acting corruptly because that's what happens when you're corrupt, you act corruptly, and uh, so. He deals with that in the strongest way. And um, we want to trace, after looking at it last week and taking our first look at it, trying to look high above the text the way we did with the miracle at Cana with the water and the wine at the wedding feast, to to look up above it and fly high over it. Today, continued our our flight over it by tracing back and looking back at the, the... the issue of zeal. When this uh, was quoted here of Jesus, the disciples in verse 17 remembered that it was said, written about Him, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And we know that was quoted from Psalm 69, which was a Messianic psalm uh, written hundreds of years before this uh, speaking of the work and person of Jesus. And the disciples saw what was happening and realized, oh, the manifestation of His zeal was to clean up the temple and the corrupt priesthood that uh, corrupted the temple. And so, um, let's read that. And we want to trace back. And we won't be able to do all of it today, but we want to trace back and go back and look uh, because it is traceable to see where this zeal was manifest in the Old Testament and how it carries through and will carry through all the way to the earthly kingdom of Jesus at His second return when He sets up His reign in Israel, His signature nation, chosen nation. Um, this has direct bearing on that. So let's pray. As we, I mean, let's let's uh, read verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's a quotation from Psalm 69, verse 9. So when the Jews answered and said to Him, What sign do you show to us since you do all these things? And Jesus answered to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. Therefore, when He had risen from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. You remember last week that we talked about, and we won't go through it all again, but the abuse that was going on there. People were being exploited because they were coming in and selling sacrificial animals to them at inflated prices, extorting money from them. We talked about the fact that it wasn't practical for them to bring their own sacrificial animals from such large, long distances and if they were close enough to bring their own the priest would have to examine them and he would almost surely fail them and say well this one because of that blemish behind his right ear is unacceptable but we have one over here that you can purchase from us and then of course charge him much more than what the animal is worth and so this exploitation is going on and then of course with the money changing enterprise as well because the temple tax was due and needed to be paid and people couldn't pay it with their own currency they had to have the Special temple coin, and so they would exchange, and of course, again, change, uh, do that for uh, uh, exorbitant prices. And so the people were being exploited. And that temple, again, is for the worship of God and to meet God, not just to meet Him, but to commune with Him. That's what it represents. And of course, it is a picture and type of Jesus. The text. Tells us so because when Jesus refers to it and says, If you destroy this temple, they're thinking he's talking about the temple. And of course, the text clearly says, No, this temple is me, it is a picture of me, it's to draw to me the attention to me. And Jesus' reference to God as his father, remember, when he references God as father in the Jewish mind, that meant that he was claiming deity and messiahship, both. And um, that got him in trouble with them, of course. They leveled that charge against him as blasphemy. And of course, we know he was speaking the truth. But He was the loyal son purging his father's house of impure worship, which is an action, like we talked about last week, that prefigures what he will do at his second coming. And um, it's a preview, once again, of coming attractions. But we zeroed in on last week the fact that This zeal that He had, that the Father be worshipped, and the Father can only be worshipped, what? In spirit and in truth. This is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. It's not a matter of geography, it's a matter of heart. Uh, He was going to purchase the right for men and women and boys and girls to be reconciled to God and therefore worshippers of Him. And that we're worship recruiters when we share the gospel. We share the gospel with somebody, we're recruiting someone for worship. To worship the one true God who is only known and worshipped and can only be worshipped if He's known by them and He knows you through Jesus. And Jesus is looking around and saying, you're lining your pockets for this, these people. You're getting in the way. You've corrupted the priesthood and I gave the priesthood as a mediator between God and men to link them. And you have corrupted it. And you're trying to line your sorry pockets for doing this, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do to make this happen. I'm going to give my life. You can imagine why you'd be sore offended over that. You're profiting over people and pilfering them, and I'm going to pay for them. And it'll come at a great expense, the cost of my blood. And that's coming off of the wedding at Cana. In other words my purchase price for my bride will come from my life. I will do it. I'm going to give my life for my bride. And that's what this temple is to represent. That's what this temple is to figure. It's for men and women and boys and girls to commune with God because we're not reconciled to God when we come out of the womb. We're enemies with God. And there's a gap between us and Him that can't be bridged because of our sin and cannot be bridged by human effort, can only be bridged by God coming to man and doing it what we could not do. This is the context. He's looking around at that and he's understandably offended. He, has, he carries an offense here that you and I could never identify with. But we can certainly appreciate. But when he says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. If ever there was a time And I'm not saying this is the only time that this has ever happened. But if ever there was a time an indictment on the church in America, it would be the effort on the part of the professing church to humanize God. The humanization of God. That's why so many in the professing church don't want to talk about hell and coil back at the notion of it. Because they think that it's excessive. That's just too much. That can't be. We must. We have to understand that. Maybe in a different way. Maybe it's punishment for a long period of time and then annihilation. Because surely this can't be eternal conscious punishment forever. Because of the humanization of God, and the humanation of, humanization of God is an affront what we must appreciate and grow in our understanding of, and that's the holiness of God. If God is holy, and He is, hell is the only thing fit for rebellion against Him. It is just punishment. The punishment perfectly fits the crime, if He's holy. If He's humanized and brought down to our level, and we grab him by the face mask, so to speak, and pull him down to us. Then it's understood in a different way. Some atheist once said that man, Christians believe that God created man in His own image. And it seems like that man ever since then has been trying to return the favor. And so we're humanizing Him, bringing Him down to our level. That's the way we would have Him. Because if we can do that as professing Christians, it can appease the guilt we have over how we live. God is holy. And only those who are holy can hope to enter into His presence and worship Him. And so therefore, the temple needs to be clean, And it can only be clean through His blood. And He said, this is the price I'm willing to pay. The price to pay for purchasing a redeemed bride so that they can be reconciled to the Father is the blood of His Son so that they can be cleansed by it and hope to have a relationship with Him. Because He is holy. And that consumed our Lord. Zeal means that, like we talked about last week, that He's zealous for something that's on his mind all the time, and because it was on his mind all the time, it constantly drove and led his actions. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And he's saying, I have this Father who deserves to be worshipped. And I have a people who can't worship Him or hope to know Him or be related to Him except through me. And this temple represents that mediatorial work, that mediating work, that there's one God and one mediator between God and man. And I had a plan for you guys to point people to me at this place. And what are you doing? Robbing them so that you can live high on the hog, as we would say in South Georgia. This zeal, though, traces back and goes all the way back. And we can learn a lot from this, I hope this morning, from looking at where it was manifest by a human being. Now, we've talked about this before. All the works that happen in the life of the believer are the works of Christ. They're His work through us. It's not our work. And they've been completed before the foundation of the world. So every time one is manifest, it's just manifests something that's already been done already in the mind of God. But this zeal traces back to the first time that the word is used in the Bible. And it's in Numbers chapter 25. And let's go back there. And we've gone through and looked at Numbers chapter 25 um, several times before. Chapters 25 figured prominently uh, in my life, and God used it prominently in my life when we were confronting uh, the seeker movement heresy. And uh, God drew me to this text Uh, over and over again and spoke to me and used it in my life. But you'll remember that the context is this. This is this strange, odd character in the Bible named Balaam. And he was a false prophet. He's spoken of prominently in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he was a prophet for hire. Just like what was going on with the corrupt priesthood that was happening in Jesus' day during the temple. And he he was cleaning it up. And this prophet was hired by a king of the Moabites, Balak, to curse God's people. He said, I'll pay you to do it. You remember the story. And this is where the the famous incident happened where the donkey, Balaam's donkey spoke uh, to him when he was forging ahead with his plans to do something that God prohibited him at first from doing and to go curse God's people. And you remember that he goes up to some prominent places hired by the Moabite king to curse God's people so that they wouldn't be a threat to the Moabites. And and God changed his language and he went up there to curse them and he wound up blessing them. And of course, it really makes the king mad because he's not getting his money's worth here. I mean, he's getting the opposite of what he paid for. But Balaam is shown for us to be, in the Scriptures, a false prophet. He was a... a pilferer. He was a prophet for hire. He was a, a money grabber, much like the priests were in the temple when Jesus did this in John chapter two. <clears throat> but you'll remember, and you don't have to look there now, but you can you can recall this if you will. But what happened was is that uh the king of Moab the Moabites was so upset they said, I've hired you to curse these people and you've not done it. And remember we talked about the fact that when he went up on those prominent high places and looked over the people, what would He he have seen? He would have seen them camped in the shape of the cross with the tabernacle in the middle and all the tribes this way and that way. And So He's up there with a bird's eye view of the cross because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can't be cursed because Jesus took it for us. And He prevented them from cursing. He prevented him from cursing. We can't. Couldn't do it. So in the third go-round... we get insight into the conversations that took place between Balaam and the Moabite king, as we see what happened in chapter 25, what we know was behind that is told for us in Numbers 31-16. And in Numbers 31-16, we learn that Balaam said this. He said, listen, this God's got a covenant with him. And he's not going to break that covenant. It's a covenant that's wrapped up in Abraham's covenant, the Davidic covenant, and later on we know the new covenant. He said he's got a covenant with these people. He's not going to wipe them out. He's not going to curse them. So if you want him to wipe them out, which is what you want, or at least to cripple them and weaken them so they're not a threat to you anymore, here's what you need to do. Their God, they also worship one God. They're not—they're uh, monotheists. They worship one God, and that one God that they worship <clears throat> will not tolerate the worship of other gods. So here's what you do: get your women all gussied up, looking as fine as they can look, and parade them in front of the nation, and they'll start to get up with the women of Moab. It will bring the judgment of God upon that because pagan practices of worship go along with it and he will exercise judgment against them. That's how you do it. So it's through the counsel of Balaam that this happened in verse in chapter 25. Are you with me? This was Balaam behind this and the Moabite king. So he did exactly what was recommended and it did work to a certain point. But let's read it. Numbers Chapter 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Just what the Moab king wanted. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out of the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman, this is a Moabite woman, from the land of Midian, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among a congregation and took a javelin in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. Now listen what happened. And those who died in the plague were 24,000 before God's judgment stopped on this kind of idolatry and sexual immorality. They always go hand in hand, by the way, you know. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him, a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So Eleazar, now Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, saw what was going on. The, The activity had subsided, but there was still one guy who took a Midianite woman and in flagrant disobedience, almost like just in your face, God. I'm just going to do this in your face. With no fear of God whatsoever, took one of the Moabite women into the tabernacle of a meeting, was involved in sexual immorality. Phineas saw it. He took a javelin. He ran them both through. And God stopped the plague and no telling how many lives were saved as a result of the actions of Phineas. God commends him. And this is the first time that zeal was spoken of in the Bible. And He says, He was zealous for my zeal. That's the same word. That's used in Psalm 69.9 that was used to Jesus in John chapter 2. That's zeal. Alright? Let's look at how it's defined. I love this. This is probably the best way that that word is defined and understood. And it's this. Ardent love. Ardent love. Possessive love. Love that consumes Love that busies. Love that motivates. Love that fills. Love that is insatiable. This ardent love for the Father is also the jealous disposition of a husband for his wife. It can be also the ardent love uh, or the jealous disposition of a person for God or of God for His people. It works both ways and it's used both ways in the Scriptures. I'm zealous for these people. The church is His bride. And He doesn't take kindly to adultery. He purchased a faithful bride. And He is faithful. The bride is often not. But one day, One day, our faithfulness will be perfect like His because it will be His that's imparted to us in practice, not just position. So that zealous, if you follow that zeal through the pages of Scripture, and it stops over several places in the Old Testament, but it keeps running through Scripture, this zeal, this zeal, this zeal. Zeal for God's house. I am consumed as a Spirit-filled believer if I am a Spirit-filled believer that God be adored and known and worshipped through the Gospel of His Son. I am concerned that that Gospel is not only proclaimed by me, but I'm concerned that that Gospel is seen in me. I celebrate as a repentant believer in my zeal. I celebrate the work of the cross for me. But I gladly, through Jesus Christ, embrace and run toward the work of the cross in me I want him to have his way with me I am zealous for him I have an ardent love for him that cannot fail that will not fail as a believer now why do I have that because I have been apprehended and captured by his love for me I can't get over it I don't want to get over it I don't want to ever get apathetic are coy or um, numb toward the fact that God would save anybody, but especially that He would save me and what He's done for me. And it moves me to be loving in return for Him. I want Him spoken of accurately. When I go to church, I want Him spoken of and worshipped accurately. I want Him to be understood and proclaimed Accurately, I am offended when He is misrepresented. I don't mean that I don't misrepresent Him. But when I do, it breaks my heart. I lost my temper the other day at work. And I thought, Lord, I got I, FedEx and I just got the, one of the vans by myself. I said, Lord, please forgive me. I did it again. I'm sorry. And it wasn't that anybody saw it. It was just inside me. This This feeling I had toward a person. And it just... I was under conviction. The Apostle Paul said, if somebody comes to you, he says it twice in the same passage, somebody comes to you, an angel from heaven, or even if I come back to you with a gospel that's different than what you received, let him be accursed. I say again, If somebody comes to you with a gospel, either me or someone else that comes to you with a gospel different than what you heard, let him be accursed. Now what does that mean? Let him go to hell. Why would somebody say that? Because they're zealous over the worship of God. I'm jealous about it. The Apostle Paul was jealous about the Corinthian church. Remember that? He said, I betrothed you to one bride. I can remember one time I was at Zaxby's and there was a guy that was flirting with my wife and I walked up to him and I wasn't very kind because I don't take it I don't take it lightly that somebody's gonna be used by the devil to try to destroy my own. That's not funny to me. Now my wife wasn't participating, I don't mean that. But he saw very well she had a wedding ring on her hand. That's righteous indignation about the fact that you know what, that's my wife, buddy. God's that way towards bride. You think He wants us committing spiritual adultery out there with every suitor that comes by? And what about leaders that lead people to do that? Where does this notion come from that in order to win the world, we've got to be like them? It didn't come from the Bible. It came from this kind of counsel. Go over there and act just like them. Come on, let's co-mingle. Let's let's just, you know what? We can go over there. We can build some bridges, create some relationships. See, this is the first time in the Bible, and tragically it's not the last, but this is the first time in the Bible that Israel fell prey to Baal worship. This is the first time. That word Baal, if you remember when we looked at the word Baal and quoting from Hosea a couple of weeks ago, It is from the Hebrew word that means master. That's how Satan wants to enslave people. It's a master-slave relationship. God sent His Son to give us a father-son relationship. How sweet. But the Master lording it over people. Making them comply. He's at Bela Peor. Peor is a mountain on the east side of Jordan River. It is strategic because it ha- it overlooks the wilderness. They could have seen all the wilderness in front of them. It was a, it was a, a panoramic view there from the Peor. And more than like, there was a temple there built on that mouth to the worship and for the worship of Baal. More than likely, the reason it was there is because there was some event that happened there that was linked to Baal, some supernatural something. And so they just erected a temple to memorialize the event and worship Baal. He was understood in a lot of different ways. He's the devil, but understood in a lot of different ways as the storm god. He was the god of rain, sun, and he was responsible for fertility. Not just fertility in human reproduction, but also in the animals and the crops. In other words, we're going to have substance and growth, humanly speaking, to feed us as well, it will be from Baal. And all of the nations around Israel They were surrounded by Baal worship. It was all over the place around them. And Balaam had enough sense to know that you know what, you start commingling that, they're going to get in trouble with their God. That will get them in trouble with God. You can't curse them, but they'll be out of fellowship with Him. Does that sound familiar? The commingling? how, how, How clear is the Bible... That believers are to love lost people but not marry them? How can light have communion with darkness? How could there be fellowship between God and Satan? It can't. Do you know how two people walk together, according to Amos? How do two people walk together? If they are in agreement. Now, how does that why does that apply to a believer? Lindsay, I disagree with that choice and I want it out of your life. I don't contend with God and say, well, God, I disagree with you. Let's debate this. No, for me to be walking with God, I come into agreement with him and I say, yes, sir, I agree. That's called repentance. How am I going to walk with God unless we're in agreement with him? How can a lost person be in agreement with him? You know what the word for that is impossible. The tragedy is when a saved person is not in agreement with him. So, they believed when there was drought, when there was crop failure, infertility in the home, they looked to Baal to solve the problem. And they believed that the problem was solved among the gods when Baal had sexual relationships with some of the other gods. And so therefore, their worship mirrored what they thought was going on or said was going on among the gods in order to answer what they were trusting the God for. And so they would have sexual immorality in their worship, temple prostitution and the like. Because after all, they were just doing what the gods were doing among themselves in order to solve their want. And so the worshipers would seek to imitate that by joining together in sexual immorality. And that was a central part of the worship of the false gods. It always is. Sexual immorality and idolatry go together, they are hand in glove. And so that was happening. But this is evil. Phineas said this. I'm going to tell you something right now. And I've done this. I've done this. You look at church growth manuals, you look at church growth. Methodology, and there's a lot of it. You'll find something sorely missing in almost all of it in modern days, part of the church growth movement. You do want to be missing a call for holy living, it's just not there because it doesn't concern them. Just get in. I told you the other day, I've got a co worker, and he just lets cuss words fly like crazy. And, he, and he, when he found out I was a pastor the other day, he said, I guarantee you, his pastor wouldn't recognize him if he walked. He goes to this colossal church and if we walk right by him in the hallway, he would not recognize him. And I was sitting there thinking, this is out of a heart of love and compassion, I was sitting there thinking, you really think that pastor honestly cares for you? You think he's concerned that you're probably fooled into thinking that you're right with God when you're not? And he has a wife and two children. That's criminal. Zeal for I'm not saying that he's not a Christian because he cusses, but I'm saying this something's wrong. You know what? In the life of holiness, God said, I'm holy, you be holy. That's his will for his church. His will for His church is to conform into Christ's likeness. And if along the way we're messing around in spiritual idolatry, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen if we're spiritual adulterers. And we're linked up with every sin and wave and cultural trend that there is out there. And if we act just like everybody else, is the difference noted? Of course not. And it's certainly not respected. Because I can tell you this, lost people, disagree with our doctrine, certainly. They disagree with everything that we stand for. But they do expect us to be different. Have you found that to be the case? They might completely disagree with your doctrine and theology, but they expect you to be different. If we don't act different, it's noted, zoned in on, I thought you were a Christian. Why? What's the implication? My baseline understanding is that your profession of faith Changes you. That's what you claim. And we do claim that. It does change us. You know what changes us from? It changes us, Romans chapter six, from slaves of righteousness, slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. That's what it changes. I was enslaved in sin before. And now I'm enslaved by righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And the Apostle Paul asked the question. He said, what profit did you have when you were a slave to sin? What was it going to get for you? What did it get for you? Well, death and hell. Yep, that's right. Now that you're a slave of righteousness, what profit do you get? Jesus and eternal life. Hallelujah. Phineas said, we are different. This cannot go on. We say, oh, see, if we don't view God as holy, Phineas killed two people. Brutally in front of everybody? How many people did He save by killing those two people? 24,000 had perished already. He stopped it. He stopped the judgment of God. Don't focus in on who got lost. Focus in on who got saved. He put a stop to it. He put the brakes on it. And that same zeal traces through Scripture all the way, and this is as far as we'll be able to go today, all the way to the Millennial Temple. Now, when he says, look what he told him. Look at the glory of this promise. God said, you know what? He was zeal for the worship of me. He was willing to take action based on the zeal that I get worshiped. He's jealous for me. And He's jealous for those who say they know me to be jealous for me. And with that zeal, He was motivated to do something. And He didn't know what kind of response He was going to get from anybody. But he was so focused. He was so zoned in on what was going on. He was so concerned with what that was going to mean if that was left unchecked. What's at stake here? The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And the fulfillment of the New Covenant that both of those hinge on. Because if the nation gets wiped out, that's why the devil hates Israel. wants to wipe them off the map so that there's nobody around to fulfill He said, I'll give him look at verse twelve. My covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him. The covenant of what? An everlasting priesthood. Do you remember that there are only three people or groups of people in the scriptures that are called kings and priests? Do you remember who they are? Anybody? Who are the only three people in Scripture? Three people are a class of people. The church, Jesus, and Melchizedek. Kings and priests are who we are. In His millennial kingdom, which I love to read about in Ezekiel. Oh my goodness, after the Lord says these dry bones are going to live and He breathes life into them. And that millennial temple is erected in all its glory. And Jesus Christ will be there. And David, I believe, will be literally there, his prince to rule. And there he'll be. And guess who he'll be flanked and served by? The priesthood that came out of the loins of Phinehas. Look at it. I want you to look at it, if you will. Look at Ezekiel chapter 40. This is speaking of the millennial temple, the millennial reign of Christ. All the details that come. In other words, this is Jesus' second coming. He's come back to earth. His covenant nation, His signature nation, His ruling nation is Israel. He will mediate His rule through Israel. And His zeal for that absolutely consumes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that Jesus keeps His eye on Jerusalem. The one who never sleeps or never slumbers looks at Jerusalem. Why do you think we're praying for the peace of Jerusalem? Because that covenant of peace is going to be fulfilled there when the Prince of Peace comes. I remember the other day. And I appreciate his remarks. They were very presidential. They were very measured. And they were very powerful. But when the President of the United States, after we had did what we did to Soleimani, the general in Iran, he made an offer of olive branch of peace to the Iranian people and said, we can have peace. And he was speaking of peace in the way the President ought to speak about it. From strength and resolve to say if you quit acting like this, we can have peace and you can join the community of nations. And I was sitting there thinking, I appreciate those words. But there is no man's solution to this. There will be peace in the Middle East, but it will only be when Christ returns. Hallelujah. The presence of Peace. And He'll bring in that cup. But look what He says. Look what He says in Ezekiel chapter 40. And we'll close with this. All right, speaking of the Millennial Temple. Okay, Jesus has returned to earth. Here's the temple built there on the Temple Mount where it... I mean, you can travel there right now. There it is, sitting there. There's only one wall, the western wall, a section of about 100 feet that you see on television all the time where the Jews go and pray at that wall and they take their prayer requests and they put them in the cracks of the wall. And the foundation of that wall is Herod's temple, the one that Jesus entered into and overturned the tables in. There it sits, just that one section. And there's coming a day when the millennial temple of Jesus Christ will sit right there but it won't be broken and tattered, it'll be glorious. And the mediating priest ministry will be carried on by the descendants of Phineas as an act of reward for the action he took in numbers chapter 25. because one of his descendants was the priest that served at David's right hand in David's administration, and his name is Zadok. And look what it is. Verse 44 Outside the inner gate, this is describing the millennial temple, where the chambers for the singers in the inner court, one facing south at the side of the northern gateway, and the other facing north at the side of the southern gateway. Then he said to me, This chamber which faces south is for the priests. Watch this now. The priests who have charge of the temple. The chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi who come near to the Lord to minister to Him. Can you think of anything better or anything greater or greater privilege afforded anybody? He's going to come near to the Lord. And the Bible goes on to say, and we'll go look at the text later, He's coming near to the Lord because He refused to compromise in the event of veil of Peor that's why he's going to be given this priesthood that's the fulfillment of that promise made to Phinehas and his descendants of which Zadok was one Zadok served in the faithfully served in the David's administration and in the millennial reign of Christ David's going to come down and he will be the prince that rules over Jerusalem underneath the rule of Jesus Christ and Zadok and his priests faithful priests will be there serving with him you hear people talk who get to serve. I don't care what president it is. You don't have to fill in the blank who it is. And they'll talk about what a privilege it is when they walk in the White House for the first time. And they get to serve there forever how long they serve because they so respect the office and, and, the, and, the, and the nation that they think what a privilege it is that I got the privilege or I get the privilege of serving the President of the United States. Can you imagine the privilege afforded to serve the Most High God? He was zealous... That zeal ran through Phinehas. It ran through his descendants. It ran through his priesthood. And it ran all the way to Jesus Christ on the day that He cleansed the temple. And it consumed him so much so that He was willing to give his life for it. Holiness gets a bad rap in our circles. I want you to think about this for a minute. We define and reduce holiness to what we don't do. Holy people are people who don't do certain things. They don't have fun. They don't have joy. And let's just don't do anything. And I don't want anybody to have fun around me either. Because if you do, that's unholy. What a sham. You know what holiness is? Holiness is sacrificial. Holiness is the giving of oneself wholly to the Lord. Holiness is love. Holiness is not self-serving. Holiness is consecration to the point where you don't even think of yourself anymore. Holiness is putting others' interests on the same level as your own in the body of Christ. Holiness is being set apart to the Lord who is love. Holiness is not what I don't do. It might involve that. But moreover, dear friends, it's not what I don't do, it's what I get to do. I get to obey God now. I had no hope of ever, I've never obeyed God as a non-believer. I've only offended Him with everything I've ever done. But now I get to obey Him. I get to walk in obedience. I get to walk in communion. I can be in agreement with Him. I can know what He says and change to the power of the Holy Spirit to be in agreement with Him so that I'm in communion and fellowship with Him. That's holiness. It's being set apart. It's being different. But the difference is noted. It's not s- s- sequestering ourselves. It's not to get up and quarantine. But it's to be among the sick and afflicted as a whole person. W-H-O-L-E. And relationships are no longer about what you take from them. It's what you're able in grace to give to them. That's the holy life. And it's based on joy. Dear ones, I had a pastor say this not long ago, and I totally agree with this. Listen to me. He said, Let, there are different ways that we can define the Gospel. But the Gospel is Jesus Christ. you realize that? It doesn't just concern Jesus Christ. It's not just the message of Christ. It is Christ. Christ is the Gospel. The person and work of Christ. It's not about a plan. It's about a man. And His name is Jesus Christ. God who became a man. Please understand this. When we talk about holy living and we talk about the freedom, the Gospel does not impose burdens. The Gospel removes them. The Gospel does not impose burdens. The Gospel removes them. I'm now right with God. I get to live in a new way. All this in heaven too? You've got to be kidding. I get released. I've been freed from me. That took some doings. Jesus died on the cross to release me from me. And the word, the wrath that you and I deserve. And now we're free. We're free in Him. The gospel is news. Everything else is advice. Every other religion gives you advice. Here's how you act. If you act this way, you can get to God. The gospel is news. God came in Christ and did for you what you can never do on your own, and you're free. He said, What's left to do? Nothing. Nothing. And then that motivates us to say, God, if that's the way I'm saved, that I am, I renounce as an act of your grace. I renounce me. And I hold to the fact that there are no limits to whatever you want to do with me. I'm yours. Above all with the price. I'm not trying to finish what you've done. This is as a result of what you've done. It's a result of me boring deeply. I brought some freight to you. Some junk that I myself accumulated. I'm my own worst enemy. And what have you done? You have released me. You've set me free. You have made me free, and now you can have me. And I'm zealous that you be known. We should be zealous for the church that we have one husband. And we don't need to be going around idolatrizing ourselves. We need to be zealous for the things of God that we be serious about Him, about who He is biblically. How can He be known? He's revealed Himself in Scripture. We have it. else says here's what you have to do to find God. Christianity says God, I'm God and I've come to find you. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm the initiator. You can't get to me. But I come to you. And we'd be zealous for that. Zealous that that's known. Zealous that that applies to my life. Lord, do the work of the cross in me. And as you do it for me, And do it in me. Do it through me. Release me from the tyranny of self-serving foolishness so that I'm consecrated to You. For I'm zealous for You. You deserve to be worshipped. You deserve to be worshipped. Would you agree with that? Does God deserve to be worshipped? Does the God that raised and redeemed you and is made known in this book deserve to be worshipped? Are you impressed with Him? That's what worth, worship means. It means the assignment of worth. 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 What are you worth to me? What are you worth? He's, he's infinitely valuable. And you find the God in here, and to be honest with you, I'll be honest with you. You go read through the Scriptures. You go mess around in Ephesians chapter 1, and 2, and 3, for instance. Just go there. Just one place. First three chapters of Ephesians. Go mess around there for a little while. And I tell you what, you'll almost be willing. you almost be willing to say this. God is too good to be true. You'd almost be willing to say that. You mean to tell me that in Christ, as a gift, all this is true about me now? And God says, Yes. I'm 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 mean to tell you that. I've presented the gospel before to people, and they they've called back and said. That sounds too good to be true, and in my mind, and in, inside my heart, I was sitting there thinking, "God, I must have done it right. If it sounds that way, I must have done it right. Because if I'm throwing burdens on you, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do this, and trust Jesus too. I didn't present the gospel. It doesn't impose burdens. It takes them away. My yoke is easy." And my burden is light. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were opposing burdens on everybody, you go and travel earth and sea and everywhere else and to make a convert. And when you do, you turn them in to twice the son of hell that you are. You know why? You know what? You take your sorry burdens and you add some to them so that you can elevate yourself above them. So they're twice as bad a shape as you're in. But you're both in bad shape. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. That's a song we used to sing when I was young. I can remember that song, Burdens are lifted at Calvary. He'll meet you there, and He'll free you. And whom the Son makes free is free indeed. Now we're zealous for everybody to know that. Zealous for everybody to know that. If I had a chance to sit on a talk show host, if I I was sitting, I used to fantasize when I saw John MacArthur sometimes on Larry King, and he always did a good job on there, but I was always thinking, if I had a chance to talk to Larry King, I'd say, you know what? The only type of people that God saves and brings them into eternal relationship with Him are ungodly people. The only type of person that can get saved is ungodly people. Christ died for the ungodly. Truth is, though, apart from Him, that includes us all. I was talking to the guy that fixes our car the other day. And he was talking about something... And he said, You know what? I I asked him about a customer of his we were talking about that he does work for, a considerable amount of work for. And I said, Is he a believer? And he said, I don't know. And he said, Well, I can tell you this. He said, I'm just a messed up guy, and God's fixing me every day. And I said, Well, you know what, Jimmy? Jesus didn't come for well people, he came for sick people, people that need a physician. He said the people that are well don't need a physician. I didn't come for well people. But the truth of the matter is none of us are well apart from Him. Amen. Only saves ungodly people. Has He apprehended you? Let Him appropriate that. Let's be zealous that He be worshipped. Let's be zealous among us that we've been betrothed to one husband. Let's don't go fooling around. I'm not looking anymore. Are you? When the truth finds you, you don't look anymore. We were having a discussion about that with my children around the table. And I said, you know, the issue is not have anything to do with one thing. As a believer, I believe this. And I'm confronted with something that contradicts this or is contrary to this. I know that whatever that is is a lie. Because this is the truth. And here's why I know it's the truth. Because it came from God. I'm not looking anymore. I've been found. Have you been found? Let's let this let's 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 appropriate by faith that our appetites have already been satisfied in Jesus. And let's be zealous for the worship of our Lord. Let's be zealous for spiritual fidelity. Let's hate. Let's hate. Adultery, spiritual adultery, in all its forms. And it's all traced back to that. Jesus said if you set out to be a friend of the world, you're in enmity with God. When that happened to you, Nick, this week, basically what happened to you is is you've got two people, or how many ever there were, that want to be a friend of the world. And if you want to be a friend of the world, this is what you want. You want everybody to like you. I want everybody to like me. And if I want everybody to like me, And that's my aim. I will compromise the truth in order to secure it. I will. If that's what I want, I will do that eventually. It'll be shades and tweaks at first maybe, but it will turn into complete compromise because the devil doesn't stop when he finds out you will. We celebrate a finished work. Isn't that great news? That's what we're going to do here at the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate a finished work. As He finishes us in practice, we celebrate that we're finished in position. We've been betrothed to one. Let's ask the Lord, Lord, is there any spiritual adultery in my life? Am I a friend of the world? Am I trying to court the world? Or am I faithful through the power of Your Holy Spirit as a result of a love relationship that You purchased through the giving of Your Son to You and You alone? We've been betrothed to one husband. Let's not fool around.